Magic of the Spheres podcast. This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have more eclectic conversations about astrology as well as all things spiritual and personal development. And I am here peeking out of this low-key winter hibernation to bring you a new episode that I had um, this conversation a couple weeks back. On this episode, I had on Michael A. Bryan, a friend and astrologer, and we discussed Uranian astrology, so this branch of astrology that is pretty new to me. Um, I mean, I've heard of it, but I have not known much of it for the years that I have heard of it. So I've been curious. And we spoke of some of the trans-Neptunian archetypes that factor into Uranian astrology chart analysis. Michael A. Bryan is an astrologer, counseling hypnotherapist, and broadcast journalist with a history as a radio host based in Nassau, Bahamas. He has studied astrology, divination, and the Western esoteric tradition since 2005. From his childhood, his life has been spent becoming an astrologer and a modern mystic. He combines these eclectic traditions into his concrete astrological counseling and hypnotherapy practice. He speaks Spanish, studied French in university, and is currently studying German. Michael is the founder of the Oraculos podcast, where he interviews astrologers, mystics, and spiritual leaders from all around the world on how they are contributing to the spiritual landscape that enriches all of our lives. And before we get into this episode, I want to offer a reminder that we are pretty close to the next evolutionary astrology intensive that I teach the deadline to enroll is January 8th, and we begin January 11th. And this is a soulful, psychological, Pluto and lunar node-focused astrology that offers insight into the soul, why you incarnated here, what you've brought in karmically from past lives and how that influences you in this life, and what is your trajectory of evolution in this lifetime. Not only is this a powerful realm of study for understanding astrology and how to read natal charts. And I really seek to empower my students to have access to their archetypal eye. So to be able to have an intuitive felt understanding of the archetypes and the technical skills such that you can read charts and have your own relationship to astrology. Not only is it this powerful you know, realm of study, but it is truly a wisdom school. I have been in love with this form of astrology since 2012 and have never looked back. And this is really one of my favorite things to do um, in my astrology practice is teach this course. I'm going to leave the link in the notes where you can read more about the class, read some student testimonials and enroll via that link. And I'll leave you to our episode now. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, Sabrina. Thank you so much for having me. So um, I want to ask you first, like how you got into astrology and what your practice is like currently. Well, I got into astrology because 
I was waiting for a long time to receive my Hogwarts letter to say that I was special and to say that I was going to go to the school of witchcraft and wizardry. And that didn't happen. And then when that didn't happen, I think I was waiting for like Professor Xavier to roll up and be like, hey, you're special. You're going to be a mutant at my school for gifted children. And that didn't happen either. So astrology was the next best thing. You know, I couldn't shoot fire out of my hands. So I moved into astrology because for some reason at a young age, I figured that astrology was akin to having a superpower. Or if I could look up and tell what the stars were saying, it would be like being Jean Grey. So as you can see, I watched a lot of TV as a kid growing up. I watched Charmed and I, I, I grew up in that generation where magic was coming back to the fore of, of human consciousness. And I really wanted to be a part of that, but in a very Hollywood sort of way. And then I went to the metaphysical bookstore in town and I found that uh, there was this entire other dimension of spirituality that didn't have to do with bending spoons with your brain and it didn't have to do with shooting fire out of your hands. It was actually something grounded and something real and something that made me feel a lot grounded as a kid into this stuff. And I just picked up all the books I could find. And I picked up books on tarot. I picked up books on astrology. And I, it really started from there, from this very uh, childish concept of, of using these things as a superpower, which I still kind of think that for astrologers, astrology is our superpower within the world. But it moved from me using these things or thinking that these things could be used in that way and really developing a very deep and soulful and spiritual relationship with them um, at a very young age. I love that. And that's really endearing. And I love that you have connected with your inner child, like all along the way. Um, I definitely can relate to astrology being a way of understanding what's special and unique about us and having like a personal connection to prophecy or a sense of, you know, it was written in the stars and it says this about me does have like a really numinous and magical quality. Definitely. Um, so you practice like a really interesting mix of types of astrology. Um, I got a really awesome reading with you where I got a lot of perspective that was just super unique to, you know, what I've been studying. Um, so what are the kinds of astrologies that you bring together? I am rooted in medieval astrology and Renaissance astrology, which are two different things. We tend to blend them or bleed them one into the other, but they're actually two uh, really separate systems. And so I use medieval astrology and you, and Renaissance astrology as my primary approach to traditional astrology. And then from there, I also integrate Uranian astrology, which for me is an overarching term that relates to a lot of things. Uranian astrology fundamentally integrates harmonics as a major factor as to why the system is built in the shape that it's built. And it also integrates, well, I guess harmonics would be the, the major thing. It, it integrates harmonics as a standalone thing, but also the very specific thing that we call Iranian astrology itself. And 
I think that my approach to wanting to be involved in very old astrology, as well as wanting to be involved in very cutting edge astrology is because I love having a foot in the past and a foot in the future. I love knowing what went before me so that I can inform my decision-making process regarding what I'm going to do next. So ironically, I've never gotten into psychological astrology. I've never really known anything about evolutionary astrology. And I have friends who are great within these fields. And I know that you practice evolutionary astrology and I'm really intrigued in the languaging and the poetry and some of the mythology around that because I've interviewed evolutionary astrologers on my own show. But I skipped that entire late 90s, late 80s movement of astrology. And I landed in the 1920s in Germany, of all places. And I found that what was going on in the 1920s felt both like a continuation of traditional astrology, as well as something that was completely avant-garde and cutting edge. And truthfully, within the 21st century, Uranian astrology is the only real new system of astrology. And by new, I don't just mean speaking about all things in a new way. I mean, the entire shape of Uranian astrology bears no resemblance to the past. You know, if, if someone shows you the chart that a traditional astrologer uses versus the chart that a psychological astrologer uses, it's the same round chart. It looks exactly the same. One may have Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, and Chiron. The other one may not. But essentially, it's the same chart. And the way of working with those charts is essentially the same. But if you see the 90-degree dial, for example, or your same chart placed on the 90 degree dial, it looks like a completely different animal. And in a lot of ways, Uranian astrology is as Uranian as it sounds, but at the same time, it's just another way of looking at your chart and another way of looking at astrology. And that's primarily what I want to tell people and teach people that Uranian astrology isn't as weird as it seems. It's just another perspective. Uh, something that happened recently or that's been happening in this current generation, I think, is that a lot of people have been presenting their charts like a list. You know what I mean? Like like a oh, list. like the co-star kind of thing. Is, th is that the co-star thing? Yeah, like co-star. Because I know that co-star, like there's some trauma. Yeah, astrologers do not like co-star. We wow, hate it so much. tell me why. Okay, pause. Tell me why. <laughs> <laughs> Because essentially, like, co-star, the people who work for content creation on the app, like, they don't actually have to be astrologers. They have to kind of, like, maybe study the archetypes, but they essentially just kind of generate content based off of stereotypes. Mm. And not as much, like, they don't really care about how deep you are into astrology. And Got then it. it also proliferates, you know, from, like, my experience on dating apps... Uh, if I say I'm an astrologer, it's I just get, you know, some interesting responses to that that are way different than how people respond to me being an astrologer in my professional life. Because in my professional life, no one really sends me a picture of their natal chart because it's etiquette. People know not to do that. But on dating apps, people will send me, you know, their co-star graph. And so not only, you know, it's just 
annoying at that point because I'm such a snob. <laughs> I'm like, I don't like this chart and I don't want to teach you. I don't even know if you know that, that this is a teachable moment. And I just get, I just don't even reply at that point. So yeah, so <laughs> that's my awkward story. My no, 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 it's cool. And, and I definitely want to get back to the question that I was answering, but, but regarding teachable moments it's so funny that you should mention that because uh, i don't know if you know but i i practice yoga as well that's a big part of yeah i do know life. and i was a professional dancer and so i have this entire other movement based side of what i do and what i've found is that my yoga colleagues as much as they know that yoga teachers strive all the time to be paid correctly and to be paid at all and to not just show up someplace and teach a class for free my yoga colleagues have this tendency of sending me their birth information or their husband's birth information and saying hey tell me about this what do you think about this and what do you need to talk to me about my chart and can i talk to you and i'm like you do realize that you expecting me to do this for you for free is essentially the same cardinal sin that people have committed against people in the movement-based industry for forever. So, yeah, I think there is a teachable thing. And today on Facebook, I was going to make a post to my yoga colleagues and say, hey, yoga peeps, like, please know that I don't give astrology readings for free. And then I would have said some other stuff. But I find it so interesting how people don't realize how inappropriate that is. And I guess I get it because we don't come from a culture that teaches us to respect that sort of thing. And there is no bridge or filter. It's just like, Oh, you're an astrologer. Read me, you know? Um, so yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It sets up some interesting, yeah. Social dynamics, but it yeah. Does. So you were saying, you know, this yes. like co-star. Yes, yes, yes. So I was, so what I was saying was, um, like the kids these days, <laughs> the kids, anyway, so the kids these days, they're all um, showing you their, their co-star. I didn't even know it was, that was co-star, but they're all showing you their co-star thing and saying, look at this. And the fact that co-star has existed at all, I think is promising because it has at least allowed people to interact with their charts in another format which I think is the beginning of people realizing that, hey, my chart could look like a circle. It could look like a square. It could look like the 90 degree dial. It could look like my co-star app. There are many, <laughs> you know, like- Okay, you know, so some redeeming qualities yeah. here. Yeah, definitely. There are many ways that your chart can look. And um, Uranian astrology only provides another way for your chart to look kind of like co-star, but without all the flack. Yeah. Well, Uranian astrology too, it's like an actual discipline and there's, you know, technique and study behind it. And it, yeah, it's not, I guess, just getting tossed around haphazardly, I don't think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, truthfully, it hasn't been getting tossed around at all because um, it's, it's, it's sunken into obscurity especially in this generation. I think I've noticed one other person on um, one other young person 
on social media talking about Iranian astrology. And I know I... I love that you're carrying the tradition, though, because like I have never I've heard of it, but I have never known where to study it, who to study it from. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, truthfully, it's, it's a beautiful tradition of astrology, but even Iranian astrology is an antique for the modern world. I mean, it was created literally 100 years ago this year. And so something that was created a hundred years ago needs to be updated. And, you know, you wouldn't use your telephone from a hundred years ago. Like you, you, you want to update to the latest iPhone if you had a hundred year old telephone. And I think, I think it's the same thing to a large degree with astrology. I love traditional astrology with all my heart. I think that there's something very brilliant about the structure and the philosophical underpinnings of traditional astrology that can't be fabricated in any other way, because those philosophical underpinnings of traditional astrology, why things work the way they work. They weren't born in a vacuum. They were born on the philosophy of our ancestors. And so I, I will always use the philosophical structure of traditional astrology as the basis from which I teach and practice. But at the same time, I wasn't born in ancient Alexandria. Like I wasn't born in, in, in medieval Italy. So I know the limitations of traditional astrology. I find it difficult when I interact with traditional astrologers who don't know the limitations of traditional astrology, because then I think we move into potentially existentially problematic waters. So what are some of the, the maybe concepts or ideals or visions from the past that you find like compelling through these forms of astrology and how do you experience them in this moment in time? One of the major things that underpins traditional astrology, and as I say this, I realize that I haven't even seen traditional astrologers talking about this, and there are a few people amongst us who actually understand the, the philosophical roots of our craft. And by us, I'm referring to traditional astrologers as a body of practitioners, because most people just pick up from the astrology. But what we have to realize is that there is a pre-astrology as well. And that pre-astrology is the way in which the ancients searched for this theory of everything. And this theory of everything they called the archai. And the archai was the ancients way of wanting to know what is the primordial ground of being? What is this substratum that underpins everything? And we find ancient philosophers, the quote unquote fathers of philosophy, Thales and Anaximenes and Anaximander, these, these, these forebearers of the philosophy that would later on develop discussing amongst themselves and discussing within themselves and trying to figure out what is the root substance. And this question, what is the root substance, whether you're looking at it as water from Thales or whether you're looking at it as, as ether from Anaximander or whether you're looking at it as the wind from Anaximenes or whether you're looking at it as fire from Heraclitus, 
this this fundamental question of what is the root of everything is the question that underpins our astrology. And insofar as that is the question that underpins our astrology, we need to create more astrological teaching models that teaches students these questions and that teaches students of astrology how the ancients thought about and conceived of these questions because their pursuits into finding a theory of everything became the foundation upon which our concept of the elements were built, our concept of the three qualities in nature were built, of, of sulfur, mercury, salt, our qualities of the four sub-qualities were built, our concept of the four sub-qualities, hot, cold, wet, and dry, and how those qualities became the elements and how those elements became the planets and how those planets set up rulership of the zodiac. I mean, it, it goes pretty deep. So I think that traditional astrology if it's really being taught how it quote unquote should be taught from this even pre-astrological basis has a lot to give the world just in terms of how we think about our practice. Because I think that if we don't have a philosophical structure to underpin our astrology, then it, 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 it misses out on some of that enlivening substance that makes all of these cracks and grooves come together in a cohesive whole, you know, it's kind of like a body without a spirit, in my opinion. Hmm. Yeah, that has me thinking about like different ways that people find astrology and like the path, because, um, you know, one might find it in Barnes and Noble or in like a newspaper and then go mm -hmm. deeper into it. And there's a certain maybe seduction of the, the personality astrology to like show people it's magical and get them deeper into it. Or, um, you know, I think even the experience of just meeting an astrologer who's very grounded in their practice tends to kind of, there's a shocking quality of like, Oh, there's more to astrology than this like limited idea I had of it. And it really opens up the cosmos and all the, um, the complexity that's kind of hard to grasp in some sense of just like, being here and like living a human life versus what is this all coming from? So. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that that point you made about finding an astrologer grounded in their practice is a very important one because at the same time you have people who know that content, but they have no soul. They're literally just, I don't know, operating on, autopilot and coffee and they have no enlivening it's as if for all of this knowledge that you have you're still a husk essentially and your astrology hasn't brought you a deeper sense of magical awareness and then you have people who don't know that stuff at all but they're living their best magical life every single day because they've found a deeper spiritual connection to their practice and that's the person i want to learn from I don't care how much a person knows about the past or how much a person knows about traditional astrology. I don't care whether you use zodiacal releasing or whether you precess your soul returns to make up for the tilt of the earth on its axis. I don't care about these things. I care about whether or not you have a deep soulful connection to your astrology, because if you do, then you're someone who... I'm not, I don't know if you can curse, so I'm not going to curse, but you're someone... You can curse here. 
Yeah, cool, great. Oh, thank you. And because if you do, then you're someone who I fucks with. Like you're actively someone who I fuck with and I want to be with you. And truthfully, the people who I've learned the most from haven't been traditional astrologers, which came as a shock to me when I sat down and I had to put together my bio one day. And I was like, wait, this person is modern as fuck. She doesn't even know what an essential dignities table is, but yet I look at her as the queen of astrology today because she's an astrological troubleshooter like no other. And she doesn't know anything about traditional astrology. And a lot of the other people who I've studied with, they don't know traditional astrology, but they're brilliant. And I'm, I'm highly bored at times, a lot of the times with traditional astrologers because, and I say this as a traditional astrologer myself. So I've had to check these tendencies within myself as well. Like have you become so heady that you can't talk to people about the realities of their lives? And I had to go through that. And then I kind of healed that tendency within myself, but it's, it, it's a pandemic within the traditional astrology community that it can be so head driven that it has no heart. And that for me is a problem. And the astrologers who have had the most amount of heart, as well as the deepest wealth of wisdom, who I've had the ability to study with and work with in any capacity have all been modern astrologers, which hasn't turned me into a modern astrologer, but it's like, damn, you know, like I want what you have. Hmm. So, um, there's some other bodies within Iranian astrology that I have learned about from you or was introduced to them from you, but I don't know that much about them. And I have the feeling that even Google searching them would lead to nothing. So they feel <laughs> like these obscure beings. Um, I don't even remember how to pronounce their names either. So I'm just curious, like, what are some of these um, other like trans-Neptunian bodies that you work with and if you can introduce them. Okay, so they are the eight trans-Neptunian planets and they are Cupido, Hades, Zeus, Kronos, Apollon, Admetos. I know that's the one. Yes. <laughs> Admetos. I don't even know what it rhymes with, but Admetos. Volcanus and Poseidon. Now, these are these are eight hypothetical planets, and we say hypothetical because, as far as we know, they have no body uh, that were. Oh, okay. I was calling them bodies because I thought they were physical. Well, here's the thing: they they operate in a very physical sort of way, and about them. Alfred Vitter, who is the founder of Iranian astrology, he began to notice a couple things. You know, he was a land surveyor and he was also drafted in World War One. And so he was in the bunkers, basically trying to figure out when things would happen based on astrology, like he was supposed to be letting people know 
you know, when to expect what based on just his ability to survey the, the battleground. But really what he was doing was he was casting a shit ton of astrology charts all day, every day, trying to figure out when would the next bomb fall, basically. And what he found was that the bomb would fall, but no chart said that or the bomb would fall and there was no indications based on traditional astrology that that thing was going to happen. And he was like, wait, there has to be something else at work here. And what he started to realize was that the planet that he was waiting for in order to make stuff happen didn't actually huff to be together by any of the Ptolemaic aspects of conjunction, sextile, square, trine, opposition. They didn't have to be together in any of those ways for things to happen, but it was the sensitive point between those two planets that probably got triggered by another planet in square to that point, another planet in opposition to that point, another planet in half square to that point, or probably another planet on that midpoint between those two planets that caused the triggering of these effects. So at one level, we have the discovery of midpoints, but at another level, he discovered that there were some things that were being triggered within a chart that wasn't a midpoint. It wasn't a sensitive point of two other planets divided by two, but it was there were other things that seemed to be affecting these charts that he was casting. And it was the transiting of these invisible factors, these invisible mathematically calculated factors, these trans-Neptunian planets or these hypothetical planets that seem to be triggering off a vast array of events within the day, within the chart, within the moment, whatever. So he set out to figure out what these things were and how these things could possibly exist. And he found that through using mathematics and through creating a theory of the creation of planets, he found four trans-Neptunian planets, which were Cupido, Hades, Zeus, Kronos. Those are the four trans-Neps, trans-Neps as we call them, of Alfred Vitter. And then after him, his colleague um, Sigrun, Frederick Sigrun, found or discovered the other four using some of the same formulas of Alfred Vitter. And essentially what Alfred Vitter's concept was, was that the sun sta stands as a central electromagnet within the heart of our solar system. And like any other magnet, the sun has valence shells of potency that cascade off of it at regular intervals into infinity, basically. So we have the sun in the center, and then we have these shells that come off of the sun as valence shells, or these, these cones coming off of the sun out into infinity. And Alfred Witte discovered that it was these shells of, of stellar influence, or it was these shells of solar influence where the planets were created. So... Venus can only be Venus because Venus stands at a particular proportion or a distance away from the sun where one of these shells of solar influence falls. And Venus can only exist in that place because that is the exact location where that shell is falling. Same as Mercury, same as Neptune, same as Pluto, same as everything. So in Alfred Witte's concept, 
the, the physical body of Venus wasn't the planet. The physical body of Venus was only a representation, a physical pinprick of a much larger energetic field. So Venus isn't the planet. Venus is the entire field of Venus's orbit, but we call Venus the actual physical body of Venus. We call that the planet as a convenience. But these planets aren't just the, 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 the matter that makes them, but these planets are that entire shell of cosmic influence that cascades off of the sun. And for that reason, we can have something like Cupido and Hades and Zeus and Kronos without actually seeing them because it's not the physical embodiment of the planet that actually makes the planet what it is. It's this stellar influence that comes from the sun that creates the planet. And it could be as small as a peanut. It doesn't matter. Kind of sounds like a wave particle situation. Exactly. Looking at waves. Exactly. Um, exactly. So are there like a few of these that you tend to, like, do you feel like you work with all of them? Are there some that you feel like super drawn to or see show up in your charts in a really specific way? We work with the ones that have a very close relationship to personal points and the personal points in Uranian astrology are six. We have three inner personal points, which are the sun, the moon, and the midheaven. And then we have three outer personal points, which are our ascendant, our node, node being both the nodes as one factor because on the 90 degree dial oppositions show up as a conjunction so if we're referring to one node we're essentially referring to both of them because they're a spectrum so they show up together on the dial so the outer personal points are the ascendant the node and the aries point which is zero degrees of all of the cardinal signs and the interpersonal points of the sun, the moon, and the midheaven are very, very personal to us for all of the reasons why your sun and your moon would be personal to you. And then the midheaven, people don't really understand that too, too tough. So we have to explain what the midheaven means in Uranian astrology. But those three factors are extraordinarily important. And if one of these trans-Neptunian planets or hypothetical planets is in strong, hard aspect. And by hard aspect, we're referring to squares and oppositions, but also conjunctions, but also semi-squares and sesquiquadrate. If one of these trans-Septunians or two of them are either forming a midpoint with your sun, your moon, your midheaven, or any of the other personal points, or conjunct one of these points, or in hard aspect to your sun, your moon, or your midheaven, they show up more strongly within the life of a person. And we only use an orb of one degree in Uranian astrology. So it's not this 10 degree orb or a six degree orb. When we're working on the dial, we're working with pinprick precision. And so we're only really giving an orb of degree or an, an, an orb of influence. And even in regular, regular astrology, if something is one degree away from something else, then it shows up pretty strongly. Um, and it's a big deal within our lives. So what are some of the like personalities of these archetypes? So Cupido, which is the first, is like Cupid. Cupido is about the community and the collective, and it's about marriage and family. And whenever we see Cupido really showing up in strong relation to, say, 
your midheaven, for example, then we have the statement of my family or my family becomes extraordinarily prominent within my life or the clan is extraordinarily prominent within my life or wherever I find myself, I always try to connect with the clan because there is something very cliquish about the Cupido energy where it wants to fall into a family setting where it feels as if it can be held, basically. Cupido also has to do with art. It also has to do with marriage. So when we think about Cupido, we're thinking about the family, art, marriage, the creative family, harmonious unions, harmonious marriages, the harmonious introduction of something within the family space would be a Cupido archetype. And if Cupido was picking up, quote unquote, not so good aspects, then that has something to say about the relationship between you and your family as well. Um, and what that may have been like, but family is the key word for Cupido. Then next we have Hades and Hades is as Hadean as it sounds. Oh, speaking of Cupido, the glyph of Cupido is the combination of the glyphs of Jupiter and Venus. So if we think about Jupiter in general astrology as being a magnifying glass of sorts and Venus as being our, our love connections, essentially, then Jupiter Venus is the magnifying of my love connections or the magnifying of my artistic connection. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Isn't it it nice? Who doesn't like Cupido? (laughs) It's a really cool one. And um, then Hades is the combination of the moon glyph as well as as well as the cross within astrology is always a symbol of Saturn. So the so the Hades glyph is the moon and the cross, which is essentially the moon and Saturn. And it feels like a moon Saturn relationship of me not being taken care of or me not fully being supported or me not fully having the sort of clean living environment that I would have wanted to come from. And then Hades has its own independent meaning, which is things that are dirty or things that things that feel sullied or things that feel defiled. So a Venus Hades in the book, and by book I'm referring to the book, The Rules for Planetary Pictures, Venus Hades could be purchasable love basically like it's not love with no strings attached but it's the love that i have to purchase or the love that i have to bargain for but it's not love freely given and so there's something low and impoverished about hades energy that really feels like you're being dragged to the heart of the underworld and back but then there's also something selfless about hades energy which um i've known astrologers who say that doctors have to have a strong hades placement because hades allows us to want to do the dirty work where other people may be turned off by that so that's hades mm-hmm. um zeus on the other hand and, and do you mind me going through that more how, how do i you love work? this it's really i like how you're evoking the qualities and yeah okay awesome sauce great So Zeus, on the other hand, is there's a relationship between um, Zeus and creativity and procreation. As we know, Zeus, the god, would have sex with every single thing that had legs or not. 
He has sex with his cows. He has sex with the geese. If a tree would let him, he'd have sex with the tree. So there is something within the heart of Zeus that has to do with procreation and with virility and with and in particular with masculine virility and how that's expressed within the world. And whenever we see Zeus, there's always this thought that it's representing the, the kernel seed of something. So something in its seed form. So here we get <clears throat> Zeus's relationship to seeds and with semen as well. And whenever there's a Zeus contact with anything, it's the kernel seed of whatever. Zeus with Venus, for example, is the, the kernel seed of new life or the, the kernel seed of pregnancy, basically, Zeus and Venus. Um, Zeus and Pluto could be the kernel seed of great power. Zeus and Jupiter could be the kernel seed of great wealth. It's always this concept of Zeus representing the kernel seed of something or, or the, the, the potential of something that is held within the heart of itself that it has yet to be fully manifested. But when it does manifest, it manifests with a vigor and with a, a virility that is really great. And then the next is, is Kronos. We have Cupido, Hades, Zeus, Kronos. And Kronos has to do with greatness in terms of the leaders of society and the leaders in any field. So Zeus Kronos would be the kernel seed of greatness or the kernel seed of the, of the strong and the high leader. Kronos has to do with how we carry ourselves in positions of leadership, how we demand excellence from ourselves, how we demand excellence from others around us, but how we carry ourselves in a state of royalty and regalness within ourselves. And if you have mid-heaven chronos, then that's probably something that you demand of yourself, a certain level of royalty or regalness um, because of who you're expected to be within your environment. So that's the chronos, the, the leader in any industry, the leader in any field, our internal inclination towards positions of power and leadership. And then there's Apollon and Apollon um, looks like Jupiter and Gemini put together. So Apollon with the Jupiter Gemini is the expansion of thoughts and the expansion of communication and the expansion of industry and the economy. And, and whenever we see Apollon, it's also having this thing of having to do with, with international connections or us expanding beyond the limitations of our own house and home, which is kind of Jupiterian in a sense, but it's also something specific to Apollon insofar as it's expanding my mind in the highest possible way in languages, in art, in industry, in economy. It's all the ways in which the expansion of our mind serves to build international connections between ourselves and other people within our environment. And then Admetos, the one, your best friend, the bottleneck. <laughs> <laughs> Admetos um, is a bottlenecking. It is a point of intense concentration. And sometimes that concentration could be, I grow up in an environment that's too small and it's too tight and it's too many of us living in the same environment. Moon Admetos would kind of have that effect. 
as in my bedroom is shared between me and 20 other people. And so I don't have the space to fully stretch out my arms, my legs sort of thing. But then there's also the quality of Admetos that has to do with specialization because this Admetos is this narrowing in, this narrowing down. And so the specialist has to narrow in and narrow down. And it's a very granular sort of energy. So I've heard Iranian astrologies Iranian astrologists say that Admetos is one of the hallmarks of the Iranian astrologer, having a strong Admetos. I, for one, have some Admetos, like my son is conjunct Admetos. And it's, it's all about looking at things in a very granular, microscopic sort of way, which is that same bottlenecking effects that we would have spoken about earlier. Um, and then it has its other things because a, a bottleneck is two degrees of separation away from feeling limited, but whatever, that's Admetos. And then the next thing is we have Volcanus and Volcanus has to do with firepower. So Volcanus has to do with firearms and firepower and, and the great exercising of force within the world. And that's pretty much all it is. So if you have uh, moon Volcanus, you come from a tribe of Valkyrie women. If you have Mercury Volcanus, your mind is your firepower within the world. If you come from, say, Sun Volcanus, you are your own source of power within the world and you show up powerfully within all of your interactions with others, but you also probably come from a strong stock of men because the Sun is also the man folk within our lives and et cetera, et cetera. Venus Volcanus, my, my, my urge to connect, my urge to create union with others is very strong and my love desire is a very strong and burning passion within myself and rip my clothes off and jump my bones basically is kind of the volcanus thing it's it's this firepower that is volcanic and that's potent because of that and then the final of the transneptunians is poseidon and poseidon looks like poseidon i was going to say something that was politically incorrect poseidon looks like pisces on its side. It's like you have the glyph of Pisces, you turn the 90 degrees on the side. And so you have um, the stem going through the center and then you have one moon on the bottom and then an another moon on the top. I'm gonna to keep my armpits down because I have sweaty armpits, but you have one moon on the bottom. And then We're one not on video. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> We're not on video. Um, so then, so that's the Poseidon situation. And Poseidon has to do with refinement refinement at the highest possible level and refinement that is poised on the brink of enlightenment. And so Poseidon has to do with how we culture ourselves and how the culturing of ourselves can serve as a refinement of ourselves within the world and how the culturing of ourselves can not only refine our mind, but it can loosen our mind from the shackles of materiality. I think that's probably one of the greatest things of Poseidon, that it has this ability to transmute our relationship to the physical and turn it into a higher expression of physicality so that we are moving through our bodies with more clear vision and more clear sight and everything about us is aimed in the direction of the highest possible refinement of humanity. So Poseidon is in a large sense the human maker insofar as it refines all of us from our lower unsavory stuff and it, it, it brings us up 
so that we can sit on the side of the angels uh, culturally, socially, in terms of our education, uh, in terms of how we interact with each other. So those are the eight trans-Neptunian planets in a nutshell. That's really interesting. And I feel like um, having a kind of astrology where you incorporate these other beings um, that we don't normally talk about in terms of like sun, Mercury, you know, through the planets, but to add in these other beings and then also to focus on some more obscure angles like 72 degrees and things that are more difficult to eyeball. Um, it's like a whole other lens to view the chart through. Um, and I feel like that, you know, that novelty of receiving new information like that, but also just like a much different, um, lens essentially can relate to seeing the world through a new, uh, vision. And I think of Uranus so much as like revelation, epiphany. So I'm just curious, like, um, what, like the quality of your experience has been like with kind of getting into, you know, and maybe granular, like, um, you were saying for you, like when you discover these other ways to view astrology through, like what happens in your life as a result? It was shattering. It was shattering because I had already established a pretty solid practice for myself and my practice was very exclusionary. So I had no interest in using Chiron for whatever my reasons were. And then Chiron became absolutely unavoidable within my life. And so now I'm like, uh, Chiron... I'm a born again Chiron believer, basically. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I've always said to people that our astrology shouldn't limit our universe, but the universe should expand our astrology, and we we shouldn't use our astrology to to put limitations on the universe's ability to surprise us or to bring us wonder or to bring us awe or to bring us deep states of confusion. One of the problems with being an astrologer is the problem of certainty and the problem of, of surety. I know how Mars and Cancer operates all the time or I know how Venus and Scorpio operate all the time. And while we may have some inclinations or some inklings as to what these things mean, we never really have the full story. We never really have the full picture. And so something that I do is I do blind chart readings. And that's something that really turns me on because I did that as a kid. And all habits die hard. But particularly, I've been doing blind chart readings because I find that a lot of people don't want to do them. And senior astrologers who have spoken to me about it, people who have published books have said to me, Michael, why would you do that? Aren't you afraid to get it wrong? Aren't you afraid to embarrass yourself? And I'm like, no, because if we practice astrology, there should be a kernel seed of truth within this astrology, regardless of what we know about a person or not. And especially if we don't know anything about a person, there should be a kernel of truth that underpins. So for clarification, like a blind yeah. reading means that 
Like how is the reading conducted that makes it blind? Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, <laughs> well, I'm not, wearing, yeah, I'm not wearing a blindfold for sure. Um, a, a blind chart reading, what makes a reading blind is when you know absolutely nothing about a person beforehand. And by nothing, I mean, I, if I'm really giving a blind reading, I don't even know the person's initials, you know, when I, do this and it is performative there is a performative aspect of blind reading a chart because you won't build a whole client practice on blind reading a chart because people come in with stuff and they just don't want to they don't want to see just how good you are at reading charts they actually want to talk to you and that becomes an important part of the client experience so there's two there are multiple ways of working with astrology and I don't think that blind chart reading is a sustainable client practice, but I do think that it's something that astrologers should know how to do. You know, you should know how to interpret astrological symbolism on its own merit. If I give you a chart and say, hey, this is the chart of, of a lady, what can you say about it? Like there, you should be able to say something and at least anything, at least a paragraph of what you feel. You don't need to know what that person's socioeconomic background is because the chart at the end of the day should be able to stand on its own. So, so I, I do these blind readings and they're part and parcel of me. And I do them all the time because I feel as if it keeps me sharp as an astrologer and that I teach other people to do the same. And I distinguish that there's a difference between being a counselor and giving a consultation versus just reading the chart, two completely different things. But I'm saying all of that to say that um, within those blind readings, I don't always get it right. Just today, before I came on this call, I was, I was doing a reading within like a masterclass I was teaching. And there were some points in it that were, that weren't the way I said they would be or they should be. And when you heard how this person talked about their friend's experience, because it was someone presenting her friend's chart, it was like, oh, that's how that fit in, you know? It didn't necessarily fit the way how I said it. And, and the issue is mine, you know, the, the problem is with me for not having a broader astrological language to speak from, to have included that within my list of possibilities. But now I do. And now that I do, now I can integrate that into what I know. And so I never have a fear of blind reading a chart because I know that even if I get something wrong or whatever, I'll learn something because I haven't gotten so stuck within my astrology that I, that I've stopped growing. So basically what I'm saying is that your astrology should still be able to surprise you. And if it's not having the ability to surprise you, you should study something else because we're essentially studying the heavens and we'll never know enough about the heavens and we should never think that we know enough about astrology. Yeah, I think that there's a certain point when it comes to studying astrology where there's like a hump that you get over where you're like, oh, I can study forever and keep learning. But there's a little phase before that where you're like, I know everything. And it's this like yeah. puffed out, like. Yeah, yeah. I, find, I find it more amongst the younger generation. And I mean, people will look at me and be like, how do, how dare I talk about the younger generation? Because I mean, I haven't had my first Saturn return yet, but I mean, I've, I've been doing this 
for a long time. And, and as I look back on my life, I, I was first introduced to astrology around the age of 12 years old, 11, 12. And there's a story regarding that. And then my mother was like into astrology and there's a whole thing, but, um, so I've been practicing for a very long time. And so when I look at, at younger astrologers today, I find that a lot of young people have this, have this certainty. And I mean, I guess people could say that about me as well, that I also have a certainty about, about astrology, but I don't think it's a certainty about astrology. I think it's a certainty about the, the skills that I have but it's not a certainty that I know everything. And I think that there's a distinct, there's a distinction between that. You could be sure about your ability to do and provide a service and still not think that you know everything. And I think that that's how I characterize myself. But when I, when I look at a lot of, of these kids coming into astrology, especially the ones who come into traditional astrology, oh my God, especially Oy vey. It's it's this it's this certainty that's that I think is poisonous. And I, I think it's a little bit toxic because it's it's too sure. And I mean, I'm always reminded of this quote in Shakespeare that there's more in heaven and earth Horatio than exists within your philosophy or that can be dreamt of in your philosophy. And I, I think that the younger generation needs to tap into a little bit more of that because we don't know what we don't know and we should stay open to figuring some shit out basically. Um, I want to offer some of my thoughts on this. Tell me. Um, yeah. So I practice evolutionary astrology, uh, you know, as you, as you know, mm-hmm. um, and as a lot of listeners of this podcast know, so it's a modern psychological form of astrology. I did not work with essential dignity or like traditional or Hellenistic astrology and still I'm very baby at studying it at this point. But I feel like I had this blessed experience of studying astrology in like a hermetic like seal because I just, I was around practitioners um, who were of the same lineage as me. So I was like kind of incubating in some sense. Um, and I already faced the resistance of non-astrologers being like, what are you doing? So I kind of developed a confidence of like, this is what I'm doing. This is my practice. Um, and learned how to not be, I don't know, like upset at people judging me or thinking that astrology isn't real. And it would be this fun kind of trickster game to just connect with people, be intelligent and have them find out I was an astrologer and then be totally surprised and think differently about astrology. And with the, um, you know, integrating more into the astrology community and encountering like spaces like Twitter, where most of the astrologers I know on Twitter are traditional or Hellenistic astrologers. I feel like that early experience of learning how to not be, um, kind of like, thrown off my game by non-astrologers judging me. Like, I don't really necessarily feel judged by people on Astro Twitter per se, but I do have ideas or forms of practice that are not popular or are frowned upon by traditional astrology, like using the natural zodiac, equating houses with signs, right? And I find that uh, in, you know, being in that space and just being friends with people, like there is kind of like a sense that people come around or that, you know, 
people, um, yeah, I haven't necessarily felt judged per se, but sometimes there's like a little trickster element even in the community around that. So Mm -hmm. I kind of, I have faith in the kids, I guess is what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Good, 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 good. I mean, the, yeah, the, the, the natural zodiac or the concept of the natural zodiac is definitely one where traditional astrologers, you know, we, we tend to get our, our knickers in a bunch because of it. And it's just because our orientation is different, basically, that house is a one thing, the zodiac is, is another thing, nigh in the twain shall they meet. And so that there's that element of that. But at the same time, I have studied with one-on-one because I, I hate being in a class. I've studied one-on-one with Judith Hill. I've apprenticed with Judith Hill for a long time. And Judith, bless her heart, even though she would say that she is a traditional astrologer, I mean, she is a brilliant astrologer and she uses very non-traditional concepts like the natural zodiac. And one day I was with her and I was like, Judith, like, why? <laughs> and she, she was like, well, you know, Michael, um, there's a correspondence in nature between, between numbers and things. And if something has 12 pieces, then those 12 pieces will correspond to the 12 houses, which will correspond to the 12 signs. And anyone who says otherwise is foolish. And I was like, okay, Judith, well, cool. Well, if you say it. And truthfully, I still don't use a natural zodiac approach within my astrology because once again, I was an astrologer even before I met Judith Hill and I wasn't even better astrologer after I met her, but I already had my practice, but I don't think it's worth frowning upon people who view things in that way because I've seen people who believe that through and through and who utilize that through and through to amazing result. I think it comes back to something that you said earlier about kind of like, are you connected to magic and spirituality in your practice or are you in your head? And I think that the astrologer or the the divination um, giver, uh, the diviner, Mm -hmm. like you have your skill set and your methodology and that becomes the granular, like the Virgo to the Pisces, like where the like numinous mystical information will come through. So Mm -hmm. I think that, yeah, I've noticed that astrologers just have so many different ways of approaching their craft, but it's very unique to them. Precisely. And I think that at the end of the day, from a magical perspective, as a person who practiced and practices magic as well as divination in a larger in a larger sense, the universe will agree to whatever terms you give it. (laughs) And and my life has proven this to be true. If you tell the universe you're going to use Placidus houses, then the universe are going to send you people whose stories can best be told through the use of Placidus houses. If you tell the universe that you're a whole sign person, the universe will send you people who 
whose stories can best be told through whole sign. And if you say to the universe, universe, I'm going to use the natural zodiac and my first house equals Aries until the day I die, God damn it. Then the universe will send you the sort of clients who will resonate with that and whose stories will also align with your particular persuasion or your particular interests within astrology. The universe isn't going to send me those people. The universe is going to send me the people whose stories can best be told through a Reggio Montana's framework, because that's the agreement I've made with the universe. So to each their <laughs> So speaking of like readings, um, you do consultations. Yes. Um, how can people like connect with you, work with you? So if people want to connect with me, you can visit my website at www.oraculosastrology.com. And everything that, that I do is there. If you want to get a reading, you can go to the book a reading page and all of the things I do is there. I'm also going to start something that I've been playing with. And I was like, Michael, do you really need to put something else on your plate? But I love the idea of this and it goes back to that whole inner child thing. Uh, I recently started something called the horror astrology hotline and that's on my YouTube channel, which is um, you could look up the oraculous podcast on YouTube and you will see the horror astrology hotline. But I also want to start a tarot hotline, a Kabbalistic tarot hotline because the Kabbalistic tarot has been one of the pillars of my life. It's been astrology, it's been tarot, and I guess the other one has been Reiki, basically, but a lot of people don't know about that. But the the, the, the tarot component is really important, and I'm going to start that up. And so soon on my website, I'm going to have offerings to people who want to receive readings on the Kabbalistic Tarot hotline. And um, that's going to be there as well. So please do go and check it out. And I guess now that I say it, I definitely have to go and do it. I haven't said this to anyone. So this is a this is a, a, a Sabrina Monarch exclusive. <laughs> wow. Awesome. <laughs> um, what is Kabbalistic Tarot before we go? Kabbalistic Tarot is just tarot basically but in the um, at the turn of the century there was an organization called the hermetic order of the golden dawn uh, which is where we get uh, arthur edward Waite, who created the rider Waite smith deck because it was also created by a woman the woman was the one who did the paintings pamela coleman smith who was a jamaican which i'm very proud to say because i am a jamaican as well um so Anyway, Pamela Coleman Smith and Arthur Edward Wade created this deck, but that was through the Golden Dawn. And then Alistair Crowley and Lady Frida Harris created their tarot deck, and that was through the Golden Dawn. So the Golden Dawn pretty much tried to find a way to graft all of their Kabbalistic and Hermetic knowledge onto the structure of the tarot. And so when someone says that they do Kabbalistic tarot readings, what they're referring to is, is a reading that's been filtered through this magical and astrological awareness 
that is inbuilt within the structure of the Golden Dawn approach to tarot. So it's not just this card means this because that's just what I think it means. It's this card means this because it astrologically corresponds to this Hebrew letter, which is connected to the sign of Leo. And Leo connects these two spheres on the tree of life. And that's why the strength card means what it means, not just because it's a woman with a lion, but what are all of the other symbolic factors that guide that? So um, there's that. And I do dream work as well. I'm a, I'm a clinical hypnotherapist and I do dream work, but I do dream work through my astrology and through my Kabbalistic tarot, because I think that my approach to astrology and Kabbalistic tarot feels like moving through a field of dreams. So um, the dream work is- I'm living magically like forever, basically. <laughs> Basically, I mean, basically, but and, and I'm happy about it because um, as an adult, I think I realized that a lot of other people haven't had this experience. And so I've never had to navigate. I've never had to navigate doubt. As, yeah. 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 You said you too? Yeah. I just, I don't doubt that magic is real. I've never had a problem doubting it. I don't have a problem. Like I don't need things to make sense in a kind of linear Cartesian way. Yep. Believe them. Yep. I don't need things to make sense according to society. Like Mm -hmm. it's very freeing. And it's kind of like a part of this podcast is just kind of collecting conversations to kind of stir the pot with that of like, Hey, like we can live magically. It's possible. Mm -hmm. But our, you know, people, other people who haven't had that sort of orientation to life, they, when they come into astrology, they come into astrology with very adult doubts and fears. And so they project those doubts and fears through their work or through their over preparation or I mean, there's so many ways in which doubt manifests within the life of a spiritual practitioner. And you know, I never had to navigate that. You haven't had to navigate that. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing because we just show up as our practices and the world needs more of that, I think. More magic. <laughs> more well, magic of the spheres. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Sabrina. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks. Thank you for listening. That thing that I was trying to say somewhat incoherently at the end was that I trust in the power of friendship to bridge certain ideological divides within the astrology community. So I think when there is that basis of friendliness, that there can be conversations um, where there is maybe some mutual curiosity in the different traditions that we're practicing and, you know, each, each lens has its gifts and the things that it really helps you see. And <clears throat> I think like really acknowledging the different strengths of different traditions, um, can be a great place to start. I think as well, you know, as I reflect on that, a lot of my way of kind of being in the world as a weird person, as an astrologer, as someone who talks sometimes about taboo things publicly on the internet. Um, I don't know. There's just kind of been a way of putting out my message and seeing who likes it. And, you know, sometimes I see people posting things and I'm just like, that is way 
outside of my realm. I don't agree with that. Or, you know, they're directly posting things that go against what it is I practice and believe in. And I just kind of gloss over it. (laughs) You know, like if, if someone's ragging on modern or psychological astrology or something, what can I do? I, I see it and I think one day we'll see each other at an astrology conference and maybe we'll be friends. And I'm just going to sit here patiently until that happens. And meanwhile, hang out with the people that, you know, I'm vibing with right now. And so that's just like an underlying attitude that I've really, um, had. And I, I don't think that I have put it into words very much was, which was why I was struggling with it in the episode towards the end was just this kind of patience, um, in people with their processes and, holding out the potential that we might be friends someday. And also, I think for me, that comes in part of like, I don't really like debate. It's not my favorite thing to do. And I haven't really been like my way of operating in the world has not really been so much to prove my point um, or to have arguments with people that disagree with me um, because It's one thing to make a well-rounded presentation of an issue and to take in different points of views that are different um, in order to create that well-rounded argument. But I don't really feel like in the business, I guess, to convince anyone of anything. Um, And I, I feel like when I try to convince people of things, it feels really draining to my life force. And the way that I like to think about, you know, what I'm doing is that, You know, this form of astrology I'm practicing is super magical. It's had this impact on me. I was allured and drawn to it. And I trust in other people being drawn to it as well. Um, So all of that, I think, that was swirling through my head was hard to put into words. Anyway, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. And I hope that you're having a sweet holiday season, however that looks for you in this very different, dare I say that, you know, overused word unprecedented year. Um, But I hope that you're doing good out there. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a little while and you have something to say about it, I would love to read your review. Please um, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes and take a screenshot of that review before you click submit and email that to me at sabrina at monarchastrology.com. And I'll send you a resource library about creating and elevating your reality. All right, until next time, much love.